This week's TribCast is sponsored by the University of Texas at San Antonio. UTSA's recent top-tier classification solidifies Texas's status as the best state for research. Learn more at bold.utsa.edu slash research. And introducing Curry, C-U-R-R-I. Think Uber for delivery and construction supplies. Distributors and contractors use Curry to get pipes, pallets, tires, gallons of paint, doors, windows, faucets, and more delivered right to their customers or job site. Curry is now available in Texas. Visit curry.com. That's C-U-R-R-I dot com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for February 18th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of, the New- of News and Politics at the Texas Tribune. And this week I am joined by politics reporter James Badagon. Hello. Hey, James. And demographics reporter Alexa Uda. Hello. It sounded like you were going to say you were the managing editor of the news for a second <laughs> there. <you. laughs> Bold. Alexa, I know that you listened to last week's TribCast, so I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but Ross and I uh, did um, blast you for skipping out on us uh, for your for lawn beer <laughs> listen some of us had to be in court and then had to take a break after court okay <laughs> it may or may not have involved a beer it's fine <laughs> all right all right very good well glad to have you this week So this week's show, we're going to talk a lot about Dan Patrick. Uh, James and Alexa, y'all both had pretty interesting stories about him in the last 24 hours or so. And Patrick, of course, is, you know, he has a competitive uh, re-election campaign. He he has opponents in the the primary election. But I think it's safe to say, y'all can step in and disagree with me if you you don't agree with this, that he is kind of in the cushiest position of the Republican statewide officials going into the primary. He, uh, you know, the, the other candidates, you know, while maybe still favorites have a little bit more competitive, more well-funded opponents and things like that. But that doesn't mean that Dan Patrick has been kind of uh, resting on his laurels during this election cycle. James, you and Patrick's story kind of went back, you know, all the way to the summer talking about all different kinds of things he's been doing in the run-up to this election, kind of behind the scenes, uh, often to the detriment of his Republican colleagues, both in the Senate that he presides over and in the statewide realm. What are some of your kind of favorite revelations from that story? There's a lot of good stuff in there. So I think the main thing is that we were able to report and reveal for the first time that Lieutenant Governor Patrick had actually tried to recruit former Governor Rick Perry to run against current governor, Greg Abbott, um, which is something that's pretty unheard of if you're talking about statewide officials who are from the same party. Um, But it's interesting because I think if you're a political observer, you've known that there is acrimony between uh, Governor Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Patrick, and that Lieutenant Governor Patrick is a much more uh, social conservative, comes from much further to the right, and tries to push and drag uh, Governor Abbott towards his agenda. And so it was sort of out in the open that they've had this sort of tense relationship. But for the first time, we were able to reveal that Dan Patrick was 
actively involved in trying to recruit uh, Rick Perry to challenge uh, the incumbent Greg Abbott, which is sort of a blockbuster revelation. There's also an involvement he goes even further. <laughs> I guess it gets, the story gets crazier because that is already like a bombshell. But then we were able to use to learn through our sources that Lieutenant Governor Patrick was also involved in sort of trying to sow a, a seed of doubt or trying to, um, you know, weaken the support that President Trump has sent towards incumbents Sid Miller in the Agriculture Commissioner's race and Ken Paxton in the attorney general's race, which is very, very interesting because they are very, very strong political conservatives. Uh, but I think it goes to show that Dan Patrick, I think is arguably the strongest politician in all of Texas. It, but if you are not on his team, Lieutenant Governor Patrick will make life very uncomfortable for you. And as we see in these cases, and as we elaborate in the story, he may also figure out a way to get you out of office to uh, facilitate the um, the accomplishment of his goals. Yeah, this was, you know, the, the Greg Abbott, Rick Perry news was, you know, in addition to just being so juicy to those of us who follow these politics was just kind of a big woe moment. And you talked a little bit about that, that relationship between Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick. And as you said, anyone who watches can see that Dan Patrick often kind of seems to be pulling Rick, Greg Abbott in certain directions in a way that is kind of uncomfortable and awkward for the two of them. And uh, we could always kind of, you know, just anyone with eyes could kind of see that, you know, that that's that was always a little bit of a weird, you know, frenemies type situation there. But for him to actually have done this seems like a even bigger step there. That's not like disagreements over their dual roles in kind of the governments of the state. It was, you know, t individually targeting someone, it felt like. Uh, right. you know, in, in that way. What do you know about why he did this? What, why this was something that he would, would take on? I think that, like I said, he wants to consolidate power even more. I mean, his power is almost absolute in the Senate. Um, we have longtime uh, veteran lobbyist Bill Miller saying he's the undefeated heavyweight champion, um, and he's as strong as he's reputed to be. He's the strongest lieutenant governor ever. But if you work in a representative government like we do, there's also another chamber <laughs> in the legislature. And he has been at odds with every leader of the Texas House that has come around during his tenure, um, and he's made life very difficult for them. Another revelation that we have in the story is that he was sort of behind uh, President Trump's uh, pressure on uh, Speaker Phelan to do an election audit. And there was potential rumblings that there might have been some involvement there in trying to recruit candidates to run against Phelan. And we have a source from Phelan's office saying that that, you know, his meddling in the affairs of the House will not be forgotten. Um, and so I think that sort of shows you the relationship there. I think it's much the same thing. If you go against Dan Patrick, you're gonna have hell to pay for it. We noted some of the senators who've suffered repercussions for doing that most notably and most recently, Kel Seliger, who is now retired after you know years of pressure from the Lieutenant Governor for, for voting against his priorities, but also 
strong allies of him, like Senator Kelly Hancock of North Richland Hills, a super strong conservative who went against him on one thing, the repricing debate in last session, and has been essentially relegated to the basement. Like he used to run the Business and Commerce Committee, which is very strong and powerful, but he disagreed on the repricing. He teamed up with the House and Abbott on this. And now he runs the Veteran Affairs and Border Security Committee, which, oh, wait, is no longer the Border Security Committee because now the Lieutenant Governor has created a separate committee that is dedicated completely to this. I talked to a source about this and they say, I've not seen more than like 15 bills <laughs> that are major bills on Veteran Affairs. So he's basically the committee chair of basically 15 bills, which is no power at all. And then we noted in the story that Sid Miller had sued the Senate last year for their rules um, to try to prevent the spread of COVID. I think they had uh, requirements that you either have a mask or show their vaccine. Uh, Sid Miller sued the Senate and Dan Patrick for what he said was a violation of like Texans liberties because basically Governor Abbott had said we don't we don't we no business will have that and then the Senate sort of quietly was doing that and Sid Miller said no so I think that's sort of where the the tension came with that one with Attorney General Paxton we're not really sure where that came from uh, General Paxton obviously has been a strong ally of Trump's and Trump uh, endorsed him even though there were other candidates in the race who had also, you know, most notably George P. Bush and now Louis Gilmert, who have been supportive of the president. Um, but the president really liked the lawsuit that General Paxton filed last year, or I'm sorry, in 2020, to try to overturn the presidential elections in four states. I think that really won it over. And it's unclear to me what exactly Ken Paxton did wrong yeah. that uh, Dan Patrick then would have said, well, this is not the guy that I want, except and this is only this is not a part of the story. This is the just me kind of riffing here that like like other Republicans, I think, and like the three other Republicans in that AG race in the primary, um, they are worried that if Ken Paxton gets into the general election, then that could be an opportunity for Democrats to pick him off. That is the only thing that I could that I could think of that would sort of make it make sense. Yeah, you know, and with regard to Abbott, too, we, you know, we don't have insight into his exact thinking for doing that. But but one thing we have kind of heard and reported on is the, the motivations of some of the folks who were concerned about Abbott, you know, and basically the idea being that maybe he was weakened by the winter storm last year and that, you know, they needed a stronger candidate in that area so so you could see that would kind of align with the the ken paxton thing right of wanting to make sure that republicans right. get in there but there is definitely another element to this that you just described of he his also just expectation of kind of extreme loyalty and that if you cross him he will you know not forget that and there will be consequences which is something that he has kind of made clear in the senate for a very long time and now we're kind of starting to see it go beyond the senate as well you know it's interesting this position right you know those of us who know about texas government are interested in texas government history and everything know that traditionally the lieutenant governor post has been a powerful position in state government. And there's a, a couple of reasons for that. I mean, I think the main one being that, you know, the governor's is traditionally a weak governor state that's um, 
in in large part as as y'all describe in the story out of an effort you know back when the constitution was written um a kind of wariness of centralized power he's very reliant on the legislature to you know send bills to his desk to write the budget to you know to allow him to kind of do the things that he wants to do then you've got the house speaker who you know is is an equal is presides over an equal chamber in in the legislature but is elected by his fellow members, right? So you can't just kind of run roughshod through the chamber without, you know, having to worry about whether there will be kind of a movement among the members who you've scorned to, to unseat you. But Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, is in this position where he is elected by the people of Texas who don't really care what Kelly Hancock's, you know, uh, uh, committee appointment, committee assignments are. Um, so he has this kind of freedom to do what he wishes. And he has so much control over the proceedings of the Senate. You know, he decides what bills get called up to be considered on the floor and all that kind of stuff. Basically anything that's going to be passed by the legislature is going to need his either approval or just his allowing it to go through without him stepping in the way. And that just gives you so much strength and so much power and just the fascinating thing about Dan Patrick is his willingness to kind of exercise that power at every turn. And, you know, that Bill Miller quote really stood out to me because one of the things I've been wondering as we talked about this story was, you know, how much of this is just him returning the prominence, the strength of the lieutenant governor position. But Bill Miller, someone who knows a lot and has been around for a long time, kind of calling him the undefeated champ, you know, taking yeah. it even farther than anyone else, I thought was really striking. Yeah, when you think of when you think of like Texas political legends, um, at least at the state house, you think of folks like Bob Bullock and Bill Hobby, you know, very strong lieutenant governors who did it for a long time. And also, you know, especially in the case of Bob Bullock, I think, ruled with an iron fist, you know, so it's not it's not new. It is new the way that Dan Patrick, just, just the absolute control that he's in. You know, we talk about in the last year, we've talked about sort of the killer bees and the first time people broke quorum in a major way. And Bill Hobby in his memoir wrote about how he regretted, you know, how he regretted trying to uh, sort of strong arm people into getting rid of the two thirds rule for that thing, like the, the thing that kicked off killer bees. Mm -hmm. um, Dan Patrick does not regret the power that he has. He changed the two thirds rule, which had been in place for like more than 60, 70 years. Like it's yeah. been in place since 1947. And, and this is the, the two thirds rule that says you need two thirds support of the Senate in order to bring a bill up, which may kind of enforced bipartisanship in the, in the right. Senate. And not only did he do it once, but then when he lost the numbers and he couldn't bring up bills that he wanted to, then he lowered it again. <laughs> like he is unapologetic about the power that he has. And the thing that was noteworthiest, I think, in the story is that he is willing to do anything to get more power because it is still limited. Like if you go to a special session, he can't dictate what gets called up, right? So he needs an ally in the governor's uh, mansion that wants the same issues on the agenda that he does. And even in a regular or special session or whatever you want, he can fly anything through the Senate that he wants, as he has done in the last couple of years. But the House, as they've done in the last couple of years, will just slow roll it and they'll just like, they'll just run out the clock. And so if you don't have an ally in the House who wants the same things that you want in the Senate, then your priorities are going to die. And essentially, that is what this 
is all about. It's all about the power. It's all about making sure everybody's on the same page. Everybody has the same agenda. And that agenda is Dan Patrick's agenda. Now, it has to be said, too, that he denied uh, some of the findings that we had in our story. He did not deny that he was part of the recruitment process for Governor Perry. Um, he did say that he talked to him about running. He said that it was only as a backup plan if, if Governor Abbott didn't, didn't decide to run again. Uh, he said late last summer is when he was having those conversations. Our sources said that is, that's a lie. Like they, they said, that's, that's not true. And the, the record shows that that's not true because Governor Abbott since 2019 has said that he's been running. Our, my colleague Patrick Svitek went to an event yesterday and asked him, were you ever considering not running? And Governor Abbott affirmatively said, no way, 100%, I was always running. He's also, Dan Patrick has also questioned sort of our reporting on, you know, his involvement in the Sid Miller uh, race and in the uh, Paxton endorsement. And there's always a little bit of a question of like, well, I never talked to the president about this. But that's not exactly what we reported. We were very careful. We said, you know, he was involved in some way. That doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> he had a conversation or there was a meeting, but there are other ways that you can try to influence the president um, to, to, you know, rethink those endorsements. And when we asked him about those, we just received no, we received no update. I think in some of the press, uh, the, the press interviews he's done this morning, um, he's been asked about that and has has not had good questions, notably in his big press conference uh, just now. We're recording this around noon today. Um, he didn't take questions. He said he was only going to take questions about the UT critical race theory thing. And then at the end, put in a nice dig towards our story and then didn't answer any of the questions, kind of left them just unhang and then just left the room. So I didn't yeah. want to give him his response there, but also for us to note that we've I, and I think the readers would see it if they read the story. We, we've covered our bases and we, we stand by the story and are very confident in the story. Well, y'all indulge me in, in a hypothetical. I've been trying to like not jump in and, and take us in this direction while you all had a more substantive. I comment. love hypothetical. Let's do it. <laughs> but like in the hypothetical that Rick Perry, the former governor, not the other dude that's on the ballot, um, would have challenged Abbott. And in the like hypothetical in which former governor Rick Perry wins that primary and becomes governor again. Does that actually create a better situation for Dan Patrick? I mean, I, I realize that the power that he has does not go away just because you have someone like Rick Perry come back into power. But to the extent that Rick Perry, largely because of his tenure, was able to amass his own sort of power in a weak governor state, I, I'm just not sure I don't know. I the the idea how aligned they would be on priorities and sort of like who gets to be in charge. You know, I, I'm not sure how that would go over with the Rick Perry. You know, we saw Dan Patrick sort of successfully push Greg Abbott into special sessions, at least if not sort of technically, at least with enough kind of like political pressure for it. But I don't know how that would go over with someone of the personality of of Rick Perry. I, yeah. I don't know. I think that's an excellent point. And I think there's a big, you know, Rick Perry is, I think, such a confident politician, especially when he was the governor of Texas and the way he went about things. I actually- Much more confident than Abbott. I, at least yeah. like 
publicly. Exactly. And, and also more of a creature of the legislature, you know, like he seemed, you know, when you observe Abbott, it never really seems like he really loves that part of the job. Whereas Rick Perry was such a backslapper and he had been in the legislature and just seemed to have such an ability to kind of work that room, work that, you know, floor of the Capitol. And um, I, I think I've wondered the exact same thing. And it, it kind of, I think, gets to, a, I think, a question that we can't really answer, but I think is, is fun to kind of think about, which is like, what is actually driving Dan Patrick, you know, because he is this person who kind of loves to be out in front of the microphones, you know, he seems to kind of relish in the attention that he, he can bring to these issues, you know, he's a former uh, radio talk radio host and uh, has always kind of had an eye for that attention. Um, but, you know, he talked about in the story, James, about or he didn't talk about the story, but you know, we've, he has talked in the past and we had other people close to him in the story talking about, he doesn't really have his own interest for governor, which I think is something that people have always kind of on and off wondered about. Um, and, you know, he seems to be nearing the kind of edge of the career. So it does kind of make you wonder is, is he going for, you know, is he so driven by kind of his extremely strong conservative ideas is it, you know, some people just like really exactly, yeah. love power? I mean, you know, there's what I, I'm fascinated by the question of what's driving him. I think that's exactly it. And we, we had so much good material in this story that uh, I apologize to our sources here, but some of it had to get cut out. And but, but part of it was this explanation of like what drives him and what drives him is he is a very socially conservative person and he wants to have a socially conservative state and socially conservative policies. That's what he came to state government to do. And he has been largely successful, like we said in the beginning, in the story. In the beginning, he was sort of a laughing stock when he proposed getting rid of the two-thirds rule. It got voted down 31 to zero. A lot of his stuff was just laughing stocks. People didn't take him seriously, but he is so dedicated to it. And he, uh, you know, from his experience in the media is so good at working the media and knowing what he needs to do to get those things across. So he picks issues that he really believes in, that he thinks are socially conservative and also populist, it has to be said, because I think this part of the story also got cut out, but the repricing debate, the repricing, <laughs> just taking digs here at all. for cutting up my story. <laughs> the, the repricing debate is a great example of something that traditional establishment business Republicans would not be on board with, which mm -hmm. Abbott and Phelan and Kelly Hancock were not, because it throws energy, worldwide energy markets into chaos, right? But it does sort of screw over the consumers, us, the people who are paying those rates. Dan Patrick said, no, 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 that doesn't matter to me. I don't care what happens. I don't care if, you know, Mr. American Airlines, or if I don't care if, you know, all, all these big companies are angry at me. I'm going to try to do right by my populist view. And it was such a strange thing because the Democrats were on board with that. It was a weird sort of strange bedfellows thing in that the Democrats loved the repricing thing because they were like, yes, let's stand up for the little guy against these like behemoths of energy and like, let's get this repriced and they should have to pay for this. So Dan Patrick, all that to say that Dan Patrick is 
a social conservative, but he also has this very populist view, which could be dangerous to those establishment Republicans that are so close to the business class, because those kinds of the Republicans, they don't want these social issues bubbling up. They don't want any of that stuff, which Dan Patrick is really for. And they don't want the riffraff sort of rising up against them and saying, no, you pay for the energy prices, which Dan Patrick does. And if I can take a shot at the Stephen G. Breyer Memorial hypothetical question from Alexa, <laughs> I think it is it is it is sort of a question of like um, you know when you're young and you like you're like yeah I'm gonna live I'm I'm gonna be roommates with my best buddy or if you're gonna go into business with family and in theory it sounds great right but then in practice you're like oh wait what did I, what did I do here and I think that would be the situation because Rick Perry is his own man. And he does know how to play the legislative game. So I think inevitably there, there, there would be butting heads if that happened, just to take a shot at that hypothetical. Yeah, you know, there's one thing that you briefly mentioned there, James, that I want to kind of expand on, which is the I don't care if Mr. American Airlines is mad at me, because I do right. think that's a big part of this, too, is he just seems to have a real tolerance for people being kind of pissed off at him. And that allows him to do a lot of these things. You know, it's the capital is a small place. Austin is a fairly small place. And you're all in the same room with these people. You're running in the same circles. And, you know, the, the lieutenant governor, the speaker and the governor uh, traditionally have breakfast every week during the legislative session. And he just has this willingness to just fire shots at folks, you know, whether it's within his own Senate or, or, you know, within state government abroad that I think a lot of people would maybe just not do because it's really uncomfortable to have to face those people again. And, and Patrick just over and over again, seems willing to do that. And that I think also gives him a little bit of power in, that in, in a very interesting way. I mean, let's talk briefly about Larry Taylor, because I think that's a, 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 an interesting example in this. I mean, Larry Taylor is, you know, you, we'll tell the story of Larry Taylor and how he has kind of become a victim of this as well. Larry Taylor has had a like two decade long career in, in the state house, first in, in the Texas house, and then since 2013 in state Senate. And he's no He's no, he's no liberal. He's, he has a very strong conservative record. He was, for every session that Lieutenant Governor Patrick has been in power, he has been the Senate Education Committee chair, which is a strong position. And he hasn't opposed Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's uh, priorities. He hasn't been against vouchers. He hasn't been against any of that stuff. He's worked well with Dan Patrick. What happened in this, um, in last year when there was a run up to like who's going to file, is that Mays Middleton, who is an up and coming House conservative, who has echoed a lot of uh, Dan Patrick's priorities in the lower chamber, he is from the same area as Larry Taylor. And he had told Larry Taylor, I'm interested in running whether you're going to run or not. Basically saying, like, you know, <laughs> get out of the way, <laughs> essentially, um, if you say that to an incumbent usually the response from an incumbent is go pound sand um, and from that and from that incumbent's allies. Um, but the response from Lieutenant, Pat, Lieutenant Governor Patrick was, they're both my friends. I don't want to get involved. And so I'm going to stay out of it, which is, I think from Taylor's camp, I would, I, I would see how they would feel aggrieved. This is, again, arguably the most powerful 
person in Texas politics. He's cast his endorsement in five other Senate races and has sort of put his thumb on the scale to say, this is the person that I want to win. This is the person that I want in my Senate. But for Larry Taylor, who again has been a strong conservative, an ally of his, has led a committee chair, he wouldn't put his thumb on the scale. And so that has been, I think, confounding for a lot of political observers and has essentially cleared the road for Mays Middleton, who it has to be said, has other opponents, um, but but to make that challenge, it just made the road much easier for him. Sure, yeah, the this sense of kind of the expectation of loyalty from Dan Patrick, you know, in the Senate, it sometimes, I think, seems to go only in one direction in a way that makes him, again, more powerful and just such an incredible effect incredibly effective person in this capital, you know, and, and if you support the things that he's pushing for, you know, you probably love to have someone like that in there, but um, it's, it, 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 it can also, I think, leave people and, you know, I'll be curious to see in the coming, you know, the next legislative session, how the actions of the past year or so affect his ability to govern and his relationships with the people in that capital. It'll, it'll be a fascinating thing to watch. All right, let's pause and hear from our sponsors. Justice Evan Young for Texas Supreme Court. Former clerk for Justice Antonin Scalia, Evan Young has earned the endorsements of 14 former Texas Supreme Court justices. Vote for Justice Evan Young. And Lone Star College. Lone Star College plays a key role in developing a skilled workforce to keep the Texas economy strong. Find out more at lonestar.edu. Okay, so Alexa, you had your own big exclusive Dan Patrick story today. This one related a little bit more specifically to the campaign and voting. Tell us a little bit about what you found in your reporting this week. My reporting also features Mays Middleton because <laughs> the lieutenant governor, what we found, the lieutenant governor as part of the sort of usual pre-primary uh, push that Republicans have taken on sent out uh, applications, unsolicited applications to voters, encouraging them to request a mail-in ballot. I should say at the top, this is allowable. Uh, this was banned for election officials. So your county election administrator cannot send you an unsolicited application, but your Lieutenant governor can. Uh, so these applications went out to thousands of voters across the state. It included a, a two page letter signed by the Lieutenant governor, his seal at the top, basically saying, go out to vote. We want to make sure we have a good showing. Request your mail-in ballot. It's convenient for you. At the bottom, it included endorsements of local candidates. Uh, you know, I saw one that endorsed Senator Donna Campbell. There was one that went out to voters that endorsed Mace Middleton. Uh, the problem was that attached to these mailers was an, a return envelope with the address of the Texas Secretary of State's office instead of the respective county elections office where these actually should have gone. The result of which has delayed thousands of applications from getting to where they need to go. On its face, that might not seem like a big issue if you have enough time for them to get to where they need to in time. The issue, of course, is that this time around, we've seen a pretty high rate of errors with applications because of new ID requirements Republicans pass. And so, you know, we've seen 14% rejection rate, I think, was the last number that we got out of Harris County, when usually 
election officials see a one to three percent rejection rate because people will you know they'll forget to pick what primary they're voting in and when they submit their application so you know that the time crunch here becomes crucial for these voters whose applications have been delayed you know by an untold number of days if not weeks in getting to where they actually need to go we'll see the extent to which this actually causes people to not be able to get their mail-in ballots uh, but the the idea he basically misdirected thousands of Republican applications to vote by mail uh, in as part of this sort of massive mailing campaign. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of unbelievable for a few different reasons. I think the main one is, as you talked about, we heard last session, legislative session about how, you know, the mass mailing of mail in ballot applications by Harris County in particular, but, but uh, you know, other places was an invitation for fraud and, you know, to do it unsolicited was this like, you know, terrible thing to actually do. And then we see Dan Patrick's office, you know, they, they ban it for the counties, government officials, um, but they then do it themselves. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Alexa, but the, the applications had Dan Patrick's seal on it, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Both of which are allowed, by the way, but yes. Yeah. And, and so to do that and then to mess it up, you know, to put the wrong address on there and, and, you know, to do it when the secretary of state's office says on their website, if you send your mail-in ballots to us, tell me if I'm saying this wrong, Alexa, if you send your mail-in ballots to us, they will be rejected, right? Is just like such a, I mean, aside from being just a colossal screw up and like not helping your voters, presumably these, you know, when, when politicians usually send these out, they're targeting voters who, you know, their data, their indications suggest are going to be, you know, kind of on their side in these things. But also just kind of the, you know, okay for me, but not for you type approach to this is unbelievable. I mean, I'm trying to think about what would have happened if this were Beto O'Rourke's campaign that sent out these mass mailers and then put the wrong address on it and they landed in the SOS office? I suspect, you know, there would have been all kinds of cries of malfeasance and, you know, shenanigans and, you know, all kinds of stuff there. So to, to, to have seen it come from the lieutenant governor's office after the actions that the legislature took often at his urging, you know, I think was pretty, pretty galling. Well, and I, I need to respond to that in parts because there's so many parts of this <laughs> of the story similar to James' situation. The yeah. first, the first part about banning this for local election officials, but not for lawmakers. Yes, you're right. This this had the seal of the lieutenant governor. And the thing is, is that this is coming. I when I missed the tripcast last week, I was in a court hearing in San Antonio, <laughs> in a related case because the law also. Told, also made it a crime for local election officials to even encourage people to submit applications to vote by mail. And as part of that law, as part of that lawsuit, the AG's office stood at the podium answering questions from a federal judge in San Antonio and said that it was the legislature's position that they prefer and the state's position that they prefer people to vote in person. I, he even said that the, because the judge kept asking, what is the point of any of this? And the mm -hmm. lawyer for the state said that it was intended to limit, quote, official encouragement of voting by mail. And yet at the same time, we are seeing these mailers go out by the lieutenant governor's campaign with the official state seal for his office. The second part of the response to that is the secretary of state's part of this. And 
up and you know this was not sort of like a I, I'm not sure the extent to which this was a wide known policy that you couldn't send your applications to the Secretary of State's office. We included in our story on there's a page on their website about applying to vote by mail. Somewhere in the recesses of my mind, I remembered that there was a box on there that said, don't send your applications to us because they will be rejected. Of course, as I started reporting the story out, I went and looked and realized that that had been changed earlier this month. The SOS didn't you know, acknowledge this specifically in the questions that we had we sent over to them, but there clearly has been a change at least in the, pol the stated policy that they had on their website. The third part of this is that you know, when I first heard about this and started reporting it out, I thought this was a mistake. I thought that they had put the wrong address on these envelopes. We reached out to the Lieutenant Governor's campaign and their response was that this was not a mistake, that this was intentional, that there were Republican voters who don't trust local officials in what they called blue counties. And so this was their effort to give voters, quote, an added layer of comfort because somehow the county officials would feel like the SOS was looking over their shoulders while these were being processed. Now we should point out, I myself have not seen an application that went to voters in counties that are led by Republicans, but the Fort Worth Star-Telegram reported recently that some of these made it to Tarrant County, right? I, you know, obviously I'm not sure that the Lieutenant Governor would accept that Tarrant County is no longer a red county, even though it's sort of voted just marginally that blue in the last few elections, but you know, I don't think that there's any concern that Tarrant County isn't going to stay red in the midterm election for statewide offices. So even the sort of stated reasoning for some of this, I, I'm not sure it quite quite gets there for voters if they're receiving this in counties where supposed that are supposedly controlled by Republicans. And obviously, the effect of of all of this is that the voters. I'm not sure that most voters know that oh, sure, this is supposed to go to the local office and not the state. And by going to the state, I feel more comfortable because I don't trust my local election official. I'm not sure where, what that is rooted in, in terms of the, whether it's a reality that many Republican voters as the Lieutenant Governor's campaign stated, don't trust local election officials. I'm also not sure that this whole uh, ordeal has inspired much confidence in those same voters that they are supposedly trying to to advocate for in, in taking this approach to this mailer. Yeah, I mean, you know, the they seem to be making some kind of a distinction of like candidates and statewide officials are more trustworthy than locally elected camp, you know, election administrators. But I just don't really see what the justification for that is other than, you know, just you can't trust Democrats, I guess. I mean, is that is there is there any other explanation to give? I, no, uh, there is not. And like you know, not to get into the weeds of election administration here, but in in many counties, yes, you have an elected county clerk who's responsible for running elections, and that is a partisan office to the extent that they have to run as a Democrat or a Republican. But in so many of these counties, the people running elections are election administrators that are appointed by the local ballot board, the local election commission, which is usually made up by the county commissioners and the leaders of the party, of both parties in the county. So the, the, the extent to which, I mean, in reality, what this is doing is sort of furthering the, the mistrust that we've seen from Republicans on 
over the heads of, of local election officials, which is also sort of ironic that, that, you, that you would try to present the Secretary of State as sort of a more reliable figure, because for a lot of voters, that actually hasn't been the case in the last few years, right? We've seen the Secretary of State's office run into issues they were flagging uh, naturalized citizens for review to almost have their voter registrations canceled. Obviously, with the appointment of the new Secretary of State who worked for the Trump campaign as it tried to falsely claim that the 2020 election was somehow uh, the outcome was false and that he shouldn't have lost that. So, you know, that obviously that probably doesn't matter all that much to some Republican voters. They might agree and, and not see any of those things as problematic, but the, the, extent to which local election administrators are sort of demonized in, in this sort of reasoning. I'm, not, I'm just not sure that that's healthy when you are supposedly trying to boost trust in elections and confidence in the outcome of an election. And to see that come from one of the most powerful elected officials in the state, I'm not sure that that's comforting for, for anyone. Yeah, I mean, speaking of not comforting, this is not the only kind of snafu with mail-in ballots that we've seen. I mean, basically, you've you've had reported that, you know, often thanks to the new kind of voting restrictions law that has been passed, that we've seen just a higher rejection rate of mail-in ballot applications in in many counties across the across the state. Yeah, it's significantly higher. You know, we we are seeing ballots come in first applications and now ballots under the new ID requirements, also enacted by Republicans as part of this broader push to you know, secure the integrity of the elections and boost confidence in the election process. And instead, people who are voting by mail, which in Texas is largely people who are 65 and older and people with disabilities are having their ballots rejected at higher than normal rates because they're not filling out these new ID requirements that Republicans enacted and didn't leave a whole lot of room for education for voters to learn about these new requirements while also telling local elected, local election administrators, you can't talk to voters about voting by mail. And so it's created this vacuum of information around these new requirements that are seemingly tripping a significant amount of voters. And you know, we, we reported on this last week when we were just getting early figures and we were, the thing was, okay, well, let's see what happens when more ballots come in. But even in Harris County, they sent a letter to the, the DOJ yesterday alerting them of some of these issues. And in the most recent numbers that they provided, they're still at like a 41% rejection rate or, or ballots that are being marked for rejection, they can still be corrected. Um, sorry, a 35% rate, and which is significantly high. And that's, that's after the total ballots they've received has more than doubled. So this problem isn't necessarily going away. Um, you know, the bulk of ballots are still yet to come and, and we'll sort of have to wait for the data to finalize because people still have room to correct the actual ballots. But the, this has this is just sort of, I'm, this is just such a muddled election. And, and when, we, when we cover early voting, I'm usually thinking about problems with in-person voting because mail-in voting is so limited in the state. But all of this has just created sort of this incredibly muddled environment for voters because that's ultimately who ends up being affected by all of this. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Alexa. Thank you, James. That's about all the time we have for today. Thank you to our producer, Todd. And thank you for our, to our sponsors, the University of Texas at San Antonio, Curry, Justice Evan Young for Texas Supreme Court, and Lone Star College. We'll talk to you all next week. Do I have a
Chucky Maloney.